Marco, PhD candidate in the Faculty of Law in University of Cambridge. Ewan McGahey, lecturer in private law, King's College London, and research associate at the Centre for Business Research in Cambridge. Christopher and Ewan, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today. We're at the inaugural Social Science and Law interdisciplinary conference. If we start with you, uh, Christopher, your presentation, Smart Cities and Ubiquitous AI, why was it called that? Well, Ubiquitous AI is based around this notion in computer science called ubiquitous computing, which is the idea that basically computers follow us everywhere, far from just having a smartphone in your pocket. This is a sort of a vision of the world where your refrigerator is the same computing experience as your television, as your phone, and this information follows you around even throughout cities. And we're starting to see this now creeping in into the form of smart cities, some primarily in the east, but in North America we're starting to see a new industry come up premised upon actualizing big data and applying it to solving institutional problems, civic problems, and city design. But isn't it an evolution? Is today's world, in terms of technology and personal data and privacy, any different from the past? Or or is it just all moving faster and quicker and there's more of it? Well, the one thing that we're facing is the demographics of how our world is shaping up. Half the population of the world lives in cities and several billion are on their way into them. So we're facing infrastructure problems about how we can scale cities to meet the demands of more people, how we can distribute labor in these cities. And these one solution that is being proposed primarily by tech industrialists in Silicon Valley is that, well, if we apply data to the everyday affairs of individuals, we can make the experience of living in a city more enjoyable. We can flatten the experience and socialize uh, civic engagement in a way that we've never been able to before. This all sounds well and good, but this is the sort of latest iteration of a you know, wave of technological promises about how technology can improve lives, but it's not altogether clear what is different about this or how these benefits accrue beyond making those who make a lot of money already more. So are there legal concerns? And why, again, are these concerns different from the past? You've got a new generation of of companies uh, taking over from the old generation of companies at point you made. So why should we like the past and not like the new? Well, I think you have to look at the intentions of the people who are doing this. I mean, it's true to say that technologies always transform society and that there has been, you know, creative destruction throughout the last several centuries. I think what is different about this era is the amount of power that is being wielded by so few companies and that this power is being actualized by selling it back to people as a service that only these... Googles, the Microsofts, the Baidus of the world can provide. So they're positioning themselves as the only ones who can really deal with this complexification of society. But this comes at the necessary expense of data extractability, that you can't improve the lives of people, you can't provide services to people without having complete panoptic control of what they do, where they go, what their preferences are. And that's a fundamental shift in what what we've ever seen in Western society before. We cling to these notions of privacy and we like to believe that we have a zone of privacy or an expectation of privacy but in the sort of you know technologized vision of the future where we're all being ambiently surveilled and all these decisions are being used to you know inform better judgments about us but it's it's the same preconditions for establishing a total surveillance state it's a matter of what purposes you direct it towards and i think that is different from any period of industrialization simply because we can do it better and you mentioned state control in china that being something that we need to be wary of 
Well, yeah, I mean, in China, we're seeing companies like Baidu and cities like Guangzhou use what's known as city brain AI, and this is primarily an artificial intelligence system that is used to help direct traffic flows, water, provision of emergency services. This is all the sort of low-level applications that you know cities have tried to improve upon through various means for decades. Now, in China, the regulatory environment's a bit different in that, well, ordinary citizens don't have a meaningful say in what the government does on their behalf. Whereas in the West, well, it's not entirely clear if, our, if we will ever come to a place where we will accept this sort of preconditions for panoptic control and surveillance into society, even if all of these benefits and conveniences present themselves. It's not clear that at a sort of intellectual level or an emotional level, the Western world is really equipped for these changes that are so easy to pull off in the East. Ewan, we'll move to you now. Thank you ever so much, Christopher. You explained that terribly well. Ewan... You don't think it's as inevitable as Christopher does. You think that we have a choice. Your presentation, will robots automate your job away, full employment, basic income, and economic democracy? Explain why you think we have a choice and we can reframe that argument that Christopher's just put over. Uh, Well, I I actually agree with almost everything, uh, maybe everything that Christopher's said. Uh, But but I do think that there is a, a narrative that's developed about the prospect of mass unemployment that simply doesn't match the evidence. So I I think that it is possible for uh, our society to maintain full employment, reduce working time, have more holidays every year, and have fair incomes. And that's very, very different to the narrative that's being developed by a lot of big tech companies, that automation is going to lead to mass unemployment and we need a basic income. It's fundamentally wrong and it doesn't match the evidence. And you looked at economic theory, you were quoting Keynes, to to, to look at that, that technology would replace us all, or perhaps technology would give us a better lifestyle, but it's not inevitable. I don't follow Keynes exactly, but I think that Keynes was fundamentally right that technology gives us an opportunity to reduce the amount of working time. Um, I'm actually uh, much more partial to George Orwell in Animal Farm. Uh, So George Orwell in Animal Farm wrote about the animals who who thought that once they evicted the human being oppressors, then they would be able to, with technology, uh, have a future of leisure uh, because they would have the ownership of the farm. Uh, And I think Orwell was fundamentally right about that. It it, it is possible for society to organise in order to have a better life, but it crucially depends on the kinds of legal institutions that we have. What do we do with our labour laws? What do we do with our corporate governance? Um, And and if we can make sure that government recommits to full employment and full investment, then we can have full employment and fair incomes. Again, it's not inevitable. You told two stories. One, you'd looked at the Canterbury Tales to see who in the Canterbury Tales had a job, and two, you looked at horses and how the car overtook the horse in another age because it's analogous to driverless cars and everybody predicting there'll be 40% unemployment as a result of driverless cars. So the first story, the Canterbury Tales. It's good of you to pick up on those. So the, 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 the story about the Canterbury Tales is a response to two Oxford academics called Frey and Oborn who are experts in machine learning, saying that 47% of jobs in the United States uh, will go. But then if you read the paper very carefully, you see that they're saying over some unspecified number of years 
as a result of automation. So I decided to use something similar to their methodology, which was eyeballing different jobs with the Canterbury Tales from 1381. Uh, so of course, Geoffrey Chaucer's characters could be analyzed as either being redundant today or, or, or not redundant or, or, or fully employed. Uh, and it turns out that 46% uh, are under my Canterbury Tales study, which of course is tongue in cheek. For only 46% of, of Canterbury Tales characters' jobs have actually become redundant. Uh, 1% less than their finding of 47% jobs going in the future. But the big difference between my study and their study is that I have historical evidence to back up what I say. Uh, and they just have uh, predictions about the future, which are like predicting what stocks are going to do or what racehorses are going to do. Uh, which brings me on to horses. Uh, what we know from automation historically is that New, when new technologies come along, it can be very, very slow when you leave everything to the market for those technologies to actually be rolled out. So between the Model T Ford rolling off the, the conveyor belts at the Ford factory uh, around Detroit, and, uh, and by the, the 60s, it, it took 45 years for motor vehicles to replace horses. 88% of horse jobs were made redundant, but it took a very long time. So I think that it's fundamentally a good thing that we have automation, AI, robotics, and the potential for human beings to do other things. But what we need to ensure is that people are protected uh, when technology replaces jobs. And you said to beware of dramatic predictions, and you agreed with Bill Gates that perhaps we should be taxing people more to keep people in employment, not to give them a living wage? I mean, I, I was, again, a, a bit tongue-in-cheek. I was suggesting that when Bill Gates said a, a year or two ago that we should tax the robots, what we should really be doing is taxing robot owners to ensure that corporations and very wealthy people like Bill Gates bring their capital to the market to maintain full employment. If you go back to the 1950s and 60s, people developed theories of full employment like A.A. Burley and the, the UK government in, in white paper in 1944 that said that there should be duties on government and that there should be duties on corporations as well to ensure that capital is brought to the market. So the, the uh, unjustified restriction of, of capital to the job market is not possible. There should be duties on all big social actors to maintain full employment. But no dramatic predictions from you today? I would predict that if we have good ideas in social policy, uh, if we have a social consensus that full employment and fair incomes is possible, then society can achieve whatever it wants. There are no limits. And it's entirely possible with the technology that we have today to have a zero-carbon, zero-poverty society with full employment and fair incomes. Right, well, thank you. And do you agree with that? Are you perhaps more optimistic after listening to you and Christopher? I don't think it's a function of optimism or pessimism. I think it's a function of first understanding and making sense of what's coming. And I think that the deficit that we're operating with is that when we talk about automation, we talk about robots, well, this only tells part of the story and that the kind of ways that technology will be replacing labor isn't just the physical aspects of labor, but indeed the cognitive aspects of labor. And that's not a function of robotics, that's a function of the advances in machine learning, computer science in general, and that's what we can't predict. We cannot predict the advances in the application of the cognitive dimensions of the technology and how this translates into unemployment or loss of jobs. So. I, not that I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic or I'm pessimistic, it's just not clear to me how these predictions mess with 
How are people preparing for schools? How is this translating into educational outcome, into skills trainings? Because you know, anecdotally, we can say that you know, if you speak to people at the computer lab here, the Department of Engineering, there is a disproportionate amount of people now wanting to become machine learning scientists and engineers wanting to become ICT specialists, but it's not clear what, you know, where the civil engineers of the world were come from and how this sort of skills development and the kind of world that students are preparing themselves for will actually shape up. A quick repost. I agree with everything that Christopher says. Uh, I think just fundamentally we have to underline uh, the idea that the, the narrative that's been developing from tech billionaires, there's going to be mass unemployment and we need a basic income is not true. There's no evidence behind it and they've got severe conflicts of interest driving their narrative. We need to change that and we can have a more positive vision for the future. You and Christopher, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today on your inaugural social science and law interdisciplinary conference. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.